Well, thank you very much, Kevin and Greg, for leading us this morning uh, in worship. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Thanks for joining me here this morning. Um, good to see you guys, and thanks for joining online. If you're listening online, good to see you guys uh, here as well. Um, it was about 30 years ago when I spent some time with my family in, boy, I think it was Illinois or Michigan. Forgive me, because it was a long time ago, and I forget. And there I met my uncle, who I don't really often engage with, and my uncle called my dad out to the back uh, porch. It was a screened-in porch that they had, and their screen door wasn't working right, and so he fixed it, but now he had a problem. It wouldn't open at all. And he said to my dad, would you mind coming to take a look at it? So my dad came and take a look, took a look at it, and he said, well, you know what, Larry? You hung one hinge one way, one hinge another way. So you've managed to lock the door permanently. Well done. Well done. It's amazing sometimes we do some things that we think are good, but they're actually sometimes dumb mistakes. And I don't have any stones to throw because it was maybe 15 years ago when I did a really dumb thing at my house in New Holland. I uh, told this story maybe 15 years ago here, so forgive me if you remember, but you'll enjoy it enough. I hope to allow it for a second time. And we had an old shed, and the shed door was falling apart, and I didn't feel like spending the money to get a new door on the, the shed, so I thought I'd go to fix it, and I kind of pulled it together, but then didn't really lock or latch very well, so I went and got a, a latch at the hardware store, and I just wanted to get the cheapest latch I could, so I got a gate latch, which turned out not to be the wisest move in the world, but anyway, I got the gate latch on, and it just had like a little, you know, a, a little bar on the door, like I attached it to the door, so when it would come and into the receiver, it would just click shut, and then you open it, and you can open it again, right? It works really well. Well, anyway, I got it to work. I was pretty proud that I got it lined up, considering it was an old door and everything, and so anyhow, at some point then, I went into the shed to get something, and the wind <laughs> latched the door really well. And I was supposed to be on babysitting duty. My kids were sleeping in the house, so that was, that was fun. Now, thankfully, I didn't fix the door well enough so that there was still actually, like, a crack in the door between the door and the frame so I could, like, see there. And I had in the shed, there was a bunch of junk in the sheds. I think it was, like, a paint stirrer maybe, and I could slide it in between there and then, like, click the latch and open it up and I could get out without destroying the whole thing. And at that point, I realized this was not the, the wisest move in the world to do that. And, you know, so I, I realized, like, I don't have any stones to throw at my, my Uncle Larry because, you know, hey, I'm, I am, uh, foolishness is an equal opportunity employer, right? Like, I, I sometimes do some things that are really dumb or, or foolish. And I don't know if you're in that category, if you've ever done something like that, but it wasn't my finest day and you may have some days like that too. And what I want to talk about today is kind of when, when we're in relationships with people um, who sometimes do some foolish things, sometimes even some dumb things. And it's, it's one thing to do some dumb things like I did or my Uncle Larry did, but it's, it's another thing when the dumb things that we do are not just harmless, but they're harmful. Uh, when I make a dumb decision to, to speed recklessly and, and hurt people. Or when I'm making a dumb decision, and I know it, to, to go further and further into my addiction, hoping to find help in that chaos, and ends up hurting the people around me. Or when I make a dumb decision to, to allow my temper to have free range and let my rage out um, and, and hurt people in my family in the process. Um, dumb decision that can hurt people. And if you're around people like that, really the question and the issue that I want to look at today is, is this one, and that is what do you do when someone in your life is making decisions that are hurting you, others, or God? What do you do in that situation? When someone in your life, you could be married to this person, you could be in school with this person, you could work for this person. It's even possible that you might be this person, or I might be this person. What do you do when someone in your life is making bad decisions that are actually hurting you, others, or God? And the question I want to try to answer today is this, and that is how do we act, and how do I act, and how to act honorably when those around me are acting 
dishonorably. And there's a story in the Old Testament that I want to look at in this series that we're in called Backstory. It's not often told. It's a story of a, a, a strong, uh, intelligent woman uh, named Abigail. Uh, and Abigail's story, uh, if you know it, you're going to have a head start. If you don't, we're all going to jump into it here in a second. But Abigail's story is one of a woman who was put in a position where she was indeed facing that kind of situation, where there was someone that she was in relationship with that was making dumb decisions that were putting others at risk, and she was called on to act. And you may find yourself in that spot you may not, but I'm, I'm fairly convinced that somewhere along the way in your life, you will find yourself in a spot where you're going to have to make some hard decisions. And I'll tell you that what I see in Abigail is a woman of strength and a woman of courage. A woman of strength and a woman of courage. And if you're in a situation where there's people around you that are doing dumb things, that are hurting you, others, or God, it's going to take strength and it's going to take courage to address it and deal with it. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me. In the Old Testament, that's the first third of your Bible, uh, to a, a book called 1 Samuel. We don't often spend time here. We haven't spent time here in 1 Samuel a lot, so it may take you a second to find it. Of course, if you have your phone and pull that up on the Bible app, it'll find it for you. You don't have to acknowledge it. You don't know where it is. That's totally fine. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the chair near you, by the way. That's our gift to you, and we just want you to have that uh, heading out here. But 1 Samuel chapter 25 is where we're going to be this morning, uh, walking through a lot of this chapter. So we're going to read a lot from the Bible this morning, and I'll make some comments throughout. And I want to wrap up, I'll just tell you right now, I want to wrap up by giving you um, five um, principles or questions to provide a framework for you to think through when you might be facing a situation like what Abigail might be facing or was facing here. So if you have your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 25, beginning of verse 2, is where I'm going to begin. Reading from the New International Version, begins this way. It says, A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. That was his bank account. While he was shearing in, excuse me, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail and she was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Now, just a couple things going on that you should should know about. Uh, number one, it's sheep shearing season. That is a tongue twister. I don't know how to say that three times fast, but what that means for you, is if you're a farmer and into agriculture at all, here's all that that means. It's time to make your money, all right? You're going to get paid now. It's sheep shearing season, so it's time to celebrate because you're going to be making money, and so it's a time of festivity. Everyone's in a good mood. You're going to get, uh, you know, have big parties. This is the time of year that you look forward to. Twice a year this happens, and this is one of those times. So it's really a, a festive, joyful time. So Nabal is there. Does anybody, don't raise your hand, does anyone know anyone named Nabal? I personally don't. There's reasons why no one names their children Nabal, at least that I'm aware of. If you're named Nabal, my apologies. Please forgive me ahead of time. Let me know later on. Well, don't let me know later on if you're named Nabal, all right? Well, Abigail is the, the wife, and Abigail, you'll see in verse 3, she's described as an intelligent and beautiful woman. It's the only woman in the Bible referred to that way, intelligent and beautiful. Not that others weren't, but that's just what the author gives to her. Now, Nabal's name is interesting. He is described as harsh and, and really badly behaved. Here's what his name actually means. It means, think about this, think about what's going through mom's mind when the doctor asks her, what do you want your kid to be named? Here's what it means. Intellectually, 
or ethically foolish. Let's go with Nabal. Let's go with Nabal. Just imagine what's going on in mom's mind. I don't quite know how this happens, but this is what his name means. He's intellectually or ethically foolish. And, the, and he was a Calebite. little important piece right there at the end. He was a Calebite. All that that means is that he's a part of a very esteemed family line. And he came from, and he's a part of um, that family line that was responsible for the founding of a town that you might know called Bethlehem. The Calebites helped to found that. And Bethlehem was David's hometown. And so in a minute, David is going to interact with him, and he's going to pretend not to know who David is. He knows who David is. He's a part of the family that established the town that David himself is from. So he comes from wealth. He comes from a great family line. And verse 4, we pick up the story here. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. And he knew this was the time of year. So he sent, verse 5, 10 young men and said to them, Hey, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. And when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. Now, here's what's happening. David and his men are in the wilderness. They're kind of moving around in the wilderness right now. They're not established yet, and they're getting hungry. Now, Amazon Prime was not yet available, right? They could not put in an order at Walmart to go pick it up. So where do you go grocery shopping when you're in the wilderness and need to eat? Well, you have to have relationships with people who can help feed you. So what had happened is in the months leading up to this ask, David's men, who number about 600, had been in and around the wilderness and in and around Nabal's extended uh, family or workforce. There were servants or shepherds of his guarding his thousands of sheep. David served as essentially a protector of them because there were robbers, there were thieves, there were people who would come and take. And how would you exactly protect all of your flock if they're out in the wilderness? Well, the answer is you, you can't on your own. And so David's men served as kind of the heavy or the bouncers for Nabal's flock, free of charge. That's what they did. And so when he comes and he says, just a reminder to you, when your flock was out there, I protected them. In other words, you've received, you've received the benefit of my protective services over the past several months, and now I'm coming to you asking, during this festive time, you're about to get paid. Do you have anything to help us with because Walmart is not here yet, and so we're hungry? To which Nabal says in verse 10, he answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? <laughs> Nabal is a fool. <laughs> He's a fool. He is an absolute fool, intellectually, ethically foolish. The problem is not just that he's foolish. Now the problem is that his foolishness is going to cause harm to the people around him. Selfish, foolish. <laughs> so verse 12, you can imagine how well this went over. David's men turned around and went back, and when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, 
All right, each of you strap on your sword. And so they did, and David strapped his on as well. And about 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. David is not going to lose this battle, and they are going to pay for what Nabal did. This is serious for Nabal and his whole family. This is very serious. He's about to, he's about to die and everybody with him. And one of the servants, verse 14, picks up on the problem and is aware of this. It's amazing that a servant picks up on this and is aware. So verse 14, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife. Now here's what I think happened. That the servant was out with Nabal in the fields, heard about this, was there, and came running back to the house to tell Abigail because she didn't know. So one of the servants leaves and tells Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us. The whole time <clears throat> we were herding our sheep near them. Now, now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Powerful comment, powerful comment here. Look, look at what, what he says. I'm just going to highlight this up here, that no one can talk to him. This is the crux of Nabal's problem. No one can talk to him. And this, this servant describes it this way. If you're someone who no one can talk to, the servant describes Nabal as wicked. That's wickedness. That enables wickedness. Sometimes you hear me talk about this. I think last week when we did new members, I talk about how people are... We're under, everyone's under authority. We're people under authority, people under authority. And how good it is to be under authority. Because when you're under authority, we are saved from being Nabal, right? We're saved from being foolish. When you're under authority, you actually have people who can give you what we call a feedback loop. You can hear from people legitimately where you're making mistakes, where you're doing things that are wrong. Now, we have to ask the question, is it possible, and I have to ask myself the question, is it possible that there are relationships in which I can have the freedom to be like Nabal, that people around me don't feel like they are able to speak to me? No one can talk to him. No one can talk to him. He's full of himself. No one can tell her what to do because, listen, she thinks she knows everything about it. We can't even talk to them about it. I can't even bring it up. Everyone in the family knows about it, but no one can talk to her about it or him about it because they just won't be open to it. Like, we all know that. And what this does is it sets us up, it sets all of us up to harm people. It sets us up in what the Bible will call the, the, the ability or the, the prospect of being wicked. Because when we are not able to hear from people, we get full of ourselves. And when we're full of ourselves, I can't think of you or anything else that could be beneficial. And so here's the big problem for Nabal. He's full of himself. No one can talk to him. So Abigail, verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, I don't know what she had them on the shelves or what was going on, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, it's not like they had dresses on, but anyway, five sayas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, that doesn't sound good for some of you, I wouldn't be a raisin cake fan, all right, 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. This is a big deal. And then she told her servants, Go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Interesting choice. Sometimes people tell me, I do a lot of premarital counseling over the years, and people are like, I want a biblical marriage. Like, 
All right. Which one do you want? Exactly which one do you, do you want this one? Because I don't think you want this one. This is not, this is not the one that, that you want. That, uh, Abigail here acts really quickly, and it's smart, but it's also countercultural. Women in this time period were not to act outside of the direction and blessing of their husband. It just wasn't accepted. But she knows now is not the time to play the submissive wife card. Not if submission means my husband must approve all my decisions. In fact, his life is at stake. She knows she can't go to him. This is a big problem for her in the, the world in which she's living. She's stuck. There is social pressure for her to do certain things and act in a certain way, and yet there's immediate pressure on her to do something to keep people alive because 400 armed men are about to come on their whole household. This isn't time to mess around. And she gets stuck in a difficult spot. This is why I will tell you, and this is why you know this, if you've ever had to speak to people who have the potential of harming you, who are already hurting other people, you know that it is a dangerous and a scary conversation to have. You know that it takes strength and courage. It takes strength and courage to speak to people in power who are hurting other people, sometimes you. And this is exactly where Abigail is. One commentator, R.D. Bergen, put it this way, that Abigail's outrageous actions, including negating her husband's intentions in a matter, assuming moral culpability for actions in which she took no part, giving away part of the family fortune as a gift to one of her husband's enemies, and then acting as a prophet and a theologian, saved the day for everyone. And then he wrote this, had she not been willing to violate the social expectations placed on her, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been alive at daybreak. Had she not been willing to violate the social expectations placed on her, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been alive at daybreak. That's what David promised. He was going to do that. He's a gifted fighter with a gifted army. They were going to die. And had she not been willing to look at these social expectations and say, I need to set them aside because something's bigger at, at risk here, they would have all been in terrible, terrible trouble, which is why I would say that I also want to acknowledge that power-hungry people want that pressure on you so you don't talk. They want the social pressure so you don't speak up. They want you to know that you can be fired by them if you speak to the problem that exists in the company. They want to use that power to hold you down. They want to, either as a husband or as a wife or as a family member or as a classmate or a teammate, someone who has influence, someone who people look at, who want to harm other people, they want to keep that semblance of power so that people are afraid to speak to them. That's what happens over and over and over again. And this is why it takes strength and courage to do what Abigail did, and she violated social expectations and just went out and did it. It needed to be done. The conversation needed to happen. It absolutely did. There was no question about it, and she was right. And I would argue it was good and godly to cut her husband out of it in this situation. It would not have ended well if he would have been asked, do you agree with what I'm doing? He clearly already didn't, and he was wrong. Now, verse 20, it goes on. We get David's mindset. Here, see where he's at. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there was David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. And David had just said, it's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. 
He has paid me back evil for good, and may God deal with David. This is such a strong statement. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. He is coming for blood. We may not like that part of David's personality, but it is there. He's coming for blood. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground, and she fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. Do you hear that distant thud, thump, ba-dum, ba-dum? That is the bus that she just pushed over Nabal. Ba-dum, ba-dum. She just said, this is what my, pay no attention to the man that I'm married to. Look at it. He's wicked. He is like his name. His name means fool. He's not even in the room. He's not here. And all that she's saying is, let me name to you, David, what you already know. He is a fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I didn't see the men that the Lord had, my Lord had sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. What she did is she named what needed to be named. She called out what needed to be called out. She didn't soften it so much that he didn't understand what was going on. He already knew that Nabal was a fool. He already knew that he was wicked, and she came with that. Sometimes, sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes I experience us, uh, I have experiences with people who are afraid to call something what it is, and sometimes I'm in the same camp. Sometimes I'll call a sin a mistake. Doesn't that sound softer? Sometimes I'll call jealousy, unmet expectations. Doesn't that sound safer? You ever, you ever have that experience? Uh, sometimes I'll say, like, instead of um, anger or rage, like, I'm frustrated. Frustrated? It's frustrating. Frustrating, yep. My expectations weren't met. Sometimes you just got to call what is what is. And in the process of working through pain and hardship with people, sometimes naming what is there, even though it may seem harsh, is exactly what needs to be done. Can you imagine if she had not named it? The gift of naming it for David is that she is resonating with him. She knows the harm that Nabal's already done, and she wants him to know, I see it, therefore I'm going to name it. Now, I'm just going to mention this and move on. There's a difference between naming and blaming, by the way. Blaming comes with contempt. Naming is simply acknowledging what is. We'll get into that later. Verse 28, she goes on. This is, by the way, what is recorded in 1 Samuel 25 is the longest um, speech message from a woman in the entire scriptures. She goes on, and this part is just incredibly beautiful. Verse 28, she says, please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, 
my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. This is, this is really good. This is really, really, really good. And I don't know how she came up with this on the fly because it just, it's a beautiful, this is prophetic, this is theological, this is powerful. What she's essentially saying is, David, let me cast the future for you. You are going to be a successful king, a successful leader. In that moment in the future, you do not want to have to look back and have needless bloodshed hanging over you. This isn't the battle that you are destined to fight. You have bigger battles to fight, David. The Lord, our God, has put you in a position where you will be in a dynasty over this entire nation. And when you are there, you do not want to have to look back at this battle with any kind of guilt on your conscience. This isn't the battle that you were built to fight. To which David all of a sudden realizes what's going on. It's as if he's awoken to this moment and realizes what he's doing. Verse 32, he said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. And then, verse 35, David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. Now she goes home, David goes home, Nabal at home is drinking, he's drunk, he has a feast. The irony is not lost on the reader. He's feasting and drunk while she's trying to keep the family literally alive. She waits until the morning to tell Nabal what she did. He is so overcome by it that he has basically a heart attack or a stroke, and 10 days later he dies. David invites Abigail to be his wife. She's like, you betcha. She's gone, moves everything out, takes some maidservants with her, joins David, and the credits roll, and everybody lives happily ever after, right? Now, in this situation, the one asks the question, how can I act honorably when those around me act dishonorably, right? How can I do that? And I have a couple questions. I'm going to list them kind of one by one, um, but then I'm going to take one slide where I'm going to put them all in one slide in case that, that helps you just for processing this, right? The first question as I look at Abigail's story is this, that, that is, am I personally offended to the situation that I'm dealing with, or is this actually hurting God, others, or me? There's a difference between a personal offense and something that's going to actually hurt others, God, or me. So as I think about what I'm working with, what actually is happening? Do I feel simply offended? David felt offended, and he knew it was wrong, actually, once Abigail came to him. He knew he was just personally offended. He was seeking personal vengeance. And so he stopped, only because Abigail came. Only because Abigail. So we are, we are all, even David and his high level of character, we are all susceptible to desire for personal vengeance. I mean, no stones being thrown. We just, we have to identify that. So how do I do that? I have to ask this question on the back end of this question. Can I identify the harm being done? What is the harm that's actually being done in the relationship that I'm in? Is it a lost temper? Is it promises not kept? Is it absenteeism? What is the, the harm actually being done? For Abigail, it was pretty evident what the harm was that was being done. Another question we can ask here, another thing we can work on is we can work hard to deal with the facts. Sometimes when you're in pain, 
when people around you are struggling. Uh, it can be deeply emotional and painful. I, just, I want you to, to see in Abigail's story, she could have railed against Nabal. He was being ridiculous. He was a moral, uh, intellectual fool. She could have really torn him down emotionally, ripped him uh, a clean one, up one side and down the other, but we don't have any record of that. She just dealt with the facts. The facts are, and she named it, right? She came out and, and named it, and that's the next thing I want to say. Don't be afraid to name what's happening. She came out and named it. He is, he is being foolish. Don't pay attention to him. It is difficult to name what's actually happening, but it's so important in this process. And the final question I want to ask is this. How can I bring healing? How can I bring healing in the relationship that I'm in? Let me put these all together because I was super quick and then give you an example. Is this just a preference? What's the harm? Stay on the facts. Name what's happening. And how can I bring healing? This is Abigail's approach to dealing with Nabal. Is this just a preference? Well, I don't know. Maybe it is. So then the next question I ask is, what's the harm? Let me say that you're married to, uh, let's just say, a husband who can lose his temper over the kids because they go crazy one night. He's had a long week. He starts to lose his temper. He kind of lashes out on the kids. What happens to the kids? They're young. They're really young. Toddlers, whatever. They get quiet. They get quiet. They pull back. They pull back from dad. All right? You're processing this as a wife. What's going on? What's the harm? What's the harm? All of a sudden, you see, okay, there is harm here. That is, my kids are being, being hurt by this. They're withdrawing. The next day, you see, oh, wow, Johnny is now yelling at Susie in the same way that dad yelled last night. So let me just stay on the facts and have a conversation with my husband at some point that, listen, hey, when this happened last night, I just want you to, to know, I noticed Johnny and Susie withdrawing last night during that little yelling fit, and I just want you to know today, Johnny did the same thing you did last night to Susie, and if I can name what's happening, I, I want you to know that he's learning to use his anger as a weapon, to power up in anger, and to hurt people so that he doesn't have to deal with it anymore, and they stay far away from him. That's what's happening. He doesn't know how to deal with his anger, and so that's what's happening. Let me name it for what it is. And then asking the question, I know that those, these things make you angry. How can I help you in this situation bring healing to our family? Because it's incredibly frustrating. The kids need to learn how to handle themselves, and I also want to help you know how we can handle these things in a way that brings health and healing to our family. All right, we're walking through this in a way that realizes there's harm, I'm going to stay on the facts, I'm going to name it, I'm going to offer help and solutions for it. This is what Abigail did. It takes strength and courage to do that, especially if you have to speak to power. And especially if you're married to that power, it takes strength and courage to do that. But this is Abigail's story. This is exactly what she did. This works, by the way, in any situation, any relationship in school. If someone's bullying somebody, the same thing. What's the harm? What's the harm? Someone is being alienated, pushed to the side. Stay on the facts, all right? What are the facts? When you speak about these people this way, when you post on socials this way, I am seeing them withdraw. I'm seeing them, they're pulling out of our friend circle. Name what's happening. What's happening is your insecurity is driving you to want to make friends in ways that are unhealthy. Can we talk about ways that we can include these people and pull your desire to be known in a better way? It, it works over and over and over again to do this. It is difficult to do that, by the way, but it's the only, in my opinion, right and good way to do it. Abigail had no choices. She had to do this. She, had to, she knew the harm. She had to stay on the facts. She had to name what's happening, and she had to bring healing. There was just no other choice. And sometimes we re need to remember that, that sometimes you have to be willing to do even unorthodox, very difficult things. She was willing even to throw out social norms in order to, to seek healing. And that may even be your story. It may not be, but it may be. 
But you may feel stuck, like, uh, if I were to do that, if I were to do that, people wouldn't like me anymore. I might lose my job. My marriage might be in bigger trouble than it is. And you're under the weight of something. I, I get it. I hear that. I feel that with you. And it's very difficult sometimes when you're under authority to speak to it. It's part of what we're going to talk about next week as well, how to speak to authority. But today, we want to talk about healing in those contexts. And it can be it can be done. And so I want to encourage you here this morning to take a minute to think with me. I'm going to go to prayer here in a second. And I'd like to invite you to think in the opening moments of my prayer. I'm just going to leave a moment for quiet for you, okay? And as I do, I, I want to encourage you to think about this. Is there any relationship? Is there any relationship that you're enabling by your silence right now? Is there someone that you know who is hurting God, others, or you? but you're too afraid to deal with it. It's not just a preference, but you're nervous about what that conversation would be like. Do you have a relationship like that, that in your silence you become complicit with them? Do you have a relationship like that? Is there someone that I'm afraid to talk to, or is there any kind of sin, failure, foolishness that you're allowing in your workplace, in your school, among your friend group, or in your home? You say, now this is hurting. This is hurting God. It's hurting others or it's hurting me. Is there anything that I'm allowing that I see that I might need to deal with? So if you'll join me in a word of prayer, I'm going to give you a minute as we just take a moment to reflect. So would you pray with me? And as we do, I invite you to think. Let your heart settle for a minute on those questions. Is there any relationship right now that I'm enabling? I'm seeing a problem. It's not just personal. I'm seeing harm being done to God and his reputation. I'm seeing harm being done to others or there's harm being done to me and I don't know how to deal with it. Am I seeing it? And secondly, is there any kind of action that I need to take? Is there courage that I need to find? Is there another conversation I need to have with someone who can help me know how to step into this and speak that relationship. So take a moment. Just let your heart sit with that for a minute. Dear God, I pray that you would help us find the strength and courage that we need where we need it and when we need it. These conversations, these moments are never fun nor easy. They're often desperate. They often bring stress and anxiety. Sometimes they're dangerous. Often they require unorthodox approaches because we can't just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And so I pray for us that you would help us in the relationships that we're in if we are seeing harm 
to ourselves, to others, or God, to your reputation, that you would give us strength and you would give us a courage, like Abigail, to do what needs to be done or to seek help so that we can do what needs to be done. Give us courage and wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name.